Welcome back, everyone, to Neurology Exam Prep from Neurology at Yale. My name is Safa Abdel-Hakim. I'm a PGY3 at the Neurology Program. And we have with us Dr. Jeremy Moeller, um, the Neurology Program Director. How are you, Dr. Moeller? I'm great, Safa. Uh, I know we got a late start in recording today because you're uh, a black cloud uh, on the consult service, but I'm glad that you had some space uh, to do this. So thanks for taking the time. This is, this is an, the, a very exciting part of my day. Thank you for joining us. Um, so I think trigeminal autonomic cephalologists is an important topic for uh, clinical evaluation for headaches as well as for examination purpose. So I think this would be a good time to review the different cases that we might encounter as clinicians and as uh, examination takers. Yeah, I, I think this is a great one. So, you know, I always start with a little disclaimer. I am not a headache expert, uh, but I am a general neurologist at heart, as I've said before. I've treated lots of patients with most of these disorders. Uh, and I think it's an important aspect of being a general neurologist, being able to recognize these disorders, understanding the relationships with each other, understanding sort of how to distinguish each of these disorders from the other and some important differences. I think there's sort of a rubric on how you can understand these disorders. And ultimately, it's really important for the competent general neurologist to be able to recognize these, to treat them appropriately, because most of the disorders we're gonna be talking about today are incredibly painful. to the point where some of these are associated with outcomes as serious as suicide. And and some of the headaches we're gonna be talking about have been labeled as as suicide headaches. So we'll we'll talk about the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. I'll throw in a little bit about some of the severe episodic headaches that uh, primary headaches that do not have autonomic symptoms. And then maybe we'll finish up by talking a bit about trigeminal neuralgia. And, and uh, trigeminal neuralgia is one of the more common facial pain syndromes. It's related uh, in some symptoms to the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias in terms of how frequently the headaches occur or face pain occurs and, and some of the, uh, the severity uh, of these syndromes. Um, so we'll start with that. I'm going to start by describing a case. And this is uh, actually, you know, a, a variation of a, a common patient that we see and we'll use this as a build-off point. So I'm going to get you to feedback to me your thoughts about this case. Absolutely. All right. So let's say we're in resident clinic and we have a 45-year-old man. Uh, he's a smoker, but does not have any other serious health issues. And he comes in because he is having excruciating headaches, typically located in the temple and behind the eye. He sometimes says they feel like an ice pick driving straight through his eye. They are occurring, he says, every spring or fall, you know, that uh, twice a year he'll have a month or two of these episodes and then they'll go away for a while. Uh, But fairly predictably, uh, he has them a couple of times a year. And he says these headaches are pretty short. You know, they last about half an hour, sometimes 45 minutes. And during them, he can't sit down. You know, he's he's uh, pacing around. Sometimes he feels like he wants to bang his head against the wall. Uh, and he says they're horrible. He, he really cannot overstate how bad these headaches are. Sometimes he notices a little bit of drooping of his eyelid or tearing. And he says about 90% of the time they're on the right side, although rarely they can kind of spread to the left. Uh, his neurological examination is, is normal. So what is this sounding like to you, Safa? Sounds like cluster headache. I mean, the fact that he's a male, the fact that it happens at a particular time every year, the fact that it kind of clusters, just as it sounds, uh, and the severity of it um, is very particular of cluster headaches. 
Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think you've picked up a lot of the sort of illness script that we recognize with cluster headache. And, you know, I'm not directly involved in designing any of the examinations, uh, licensing or uh, certification exams or in-service examinations, but, you know, have discussed preparation for these with uh, residents over the year. And I think developing really good illness scripts around the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias is a really high yield investment uh, in understanding these disorders. And then and then sort of talking through some of the treatment options because the treatments vary and, and they're quite different than the treatments for migraines. So if you miss these illness scripts, you're going to be in real trouble and you're going to be digging yourself out of a hole. So the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias have a few features in common. Uh, they all tend to have a maximum pain area in the temporal region or behind the eye, really in that V1 distribution of the trigeminal uh, nerve distribution in the face. They tend to uh, have severe pain uh, and there's some variability in the severity of the pain, but uh, ranging really from very severe to excruciating. They tend to have uh, be associated with multiple short attacks and the variability in that can help you distinguish uh, the differences between these syndromes. And they have autonomic symptoms. And the most common autonomic symptoms you're gonna see are tearing or lacrimation on one side, a red eye, a droopy eyelid, unilateral uh, running of the nose or rhinorrhea, uh, sometimes uh, redness of the ear uh, uh, can be a, a characteristic of that. And there's a description of a red ear syndrome. And in most of them, very different from migraine, they're associated with restlessness. So in migraine, uh, you'll hear patients say all they want to do is go in a dark room, close the blinds and go to sleep. But what you see with the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias is that uh, people are restless, that they're agitated, that they want to pace around. Uh, I remember from medical school, you know, sort of this discussion of people wanting to bang their head against a wall. I mean, people are very agitated. And I'm not going to talk too much about the pathophysiology of these disorders, but other than to say that the hypothalamus probably plays an important role. So hypothalamic nuclei uh, and a couple of neuropeptides uh, that are activated in the hypothalamus, including the orexins. These seem to be very important with the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias in general. And the hypothalamus is really important. You may come across exam questions focusing on hypothalamic nuclei, orexins. So those are buzzwords to keep in mind. And the hypothalamus may be the key to why we see the seasonal variation in a lot of these disorders. So the temporal variation over time that you have periods of many attacks punctuated by periods of time with less severe pain. This may be important in sort of the circadian rhythmicity of these disorders that, you know, your clusters might be at a certain time of day, you know, in the evening or something like that, and, and then not at other times, and maybe sort of the key to the episodic nature, and may also be the key to the autonomic symptoms. Like a lot of other primary headache disorders and, and migraine and things like that, it's also important to think that the hypothalamus has, you know, a key role to play, but that there's also important roles to play with the trigeminal cervical complex, the trigeminal nucleus caudalis, some of the things that we've talked about with migraine pathophysiology. And not all of those lead to the pain and autonomic symptoms uh, that, uh, that we see. I like to think of the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias as on a spectrum. And so, you know, you remember we give you a, we designed a card that you use uh, to prepare for a clinic that uh, is basically the primary headaches on one page. And on that card, you, you notice we have a diagram that basically goes through 
uh, the primary headache disorders and sort of is on a, a spectrum or a continuum of intensity on yeah. a continuum of frequency and on a, on a continuum of duration. And these move in opposite directions depending on the disorders. Sure. So if we think about that intensity continuum, you know, so you have your tension type headaches or milder headaches on the sort of lower intensity range, then you move up through migraine and then you move up through the tri trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. And then those move in order as well. You move from cluster to paroxysmal hemicrania, which are very severe. Sunctin suna is usually quite severe as well. So the, the, the tax, the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias are on the higher end of the intensity scale above migraine and tension type headache. Correct. In terms of frequency, you see the same thing, right? Tension type headaches tend to have a relatively low frequency, migraine a little bit more frequent, you know, then you move up to chronic migraine and then you move up to the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias. And so cluster headache, you know, the frequency is going to be a handful of headaches a day, you know, multiple headaches a day. That's much more than you're going to see in migraines. Then you move up the spectrum to paroxysmal hemicrania. You're going to see possibly dozens of headaches a day. And then sunct or suna, the, uh, a rarer syndrome, you know, this has been reported that people have very brief attacks, but they're hundreds a day. Uh, so hundreds of attacks a day. And you can imagine how disabling that can be and upsetting oh. that can be. Mm -hmm. And then similarly, the duration goes down, right? If you're going to have very frequent headaches, the duration goes down. So again, you have that continuum from cluster to paroxysmal hemicrania to sunct and suna. And we'll talk about what those mean when we get to it. And so cluster, again, the duration is like this syndrome, this uh, patient that I described, you know, the, the, the duration is typically going to be, a, you know, within 15 minutes to a few hours. Paroxysmal hemicrania, the episodes are short in the range of minutes, you know, a couple of minutes to, you know, 30 minutes or something like that. And then the sunct and suna, these are extremely brief seconds. So we're going from sort of around an hour cluster, you know, plus or minus to minutes for paroxysmal hemicrania to seconds uh, for sunct and suna. And so it's really useful to think of these on a continuum and sort of fitting together. One of the resources that I know I've pointed you to uh, before is the International Classification of Headache Disorders. Uh, this is basically a classification system for headache disorders. It has a lot of similarities to something like the DSM-5 uh, for psychiatric disease. So you have these criteria in, in a number of different categories. And I'm just gonna run through the criteria of cluster. We've already sort of built out the disease script for cluster, but I just wanna walk through the criteria. So cluster headache, really you wanna have multiple headaches fulfilling you know, the following criteria. These are severe or very severe, lasting between 15 minutes and three hours. When untreated, that's gonna be with all of your primary headache syndromes. Ideally, you'd like to see these headache syndromes shorter uh, when you're providing uh, active treatment. And you have either or both of the following. So this is the, the first part is the autonomic symptoms. And those conclude the conjectival injection or tearing as we talked about, nasal congestion or rhinorrhea, Eyelid edema can happen, forehead or facial uh, sweating. I hadn't mentioned that before. And then the ptosis and sometimes meiosis. You'll sometimes see a smaller pupil. And then the second thing, and this is critically important, and one of those disease script things that you need to pick up on is that restlessness. And the restlessness is really important. Uh, it's very different than migraine. Migrainers want to go in a room and lie down. People with tax, with trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias are pacing. They can't possibly get any rest. 
And then the frequency for cluster headache in, in this classification system is between one every other day and about eight a day. And again, it's, it's common to have multiple of these headaches a day, uh, and it's cause, common to have this seasonal variation. Cluster headaches are much more common in men than in women, and that's different from some of the other headache syndromes. And, uh, and they can be very difficult to treat. And uh, we've talked about before, and, and this is in the ICDHD website, that there is activation in a region of the posterior hypothalamic gray matter. So this can sometimes be genetic. So that's uh, uh, very important. And again, the pain in most of these syndromes is going to be in the V1 distribution of the trigeminal nerve. So sort of retroorbital, periorbital behind the eye or in the temporal region. Those are the sort of commonest places. And, you know, there can be variability, but that's uh, generally what we're talking about. Uh, now is a good time to mention, and this is good for clinical practice and a good time for exam preparation, to think about that with any of these headaches, it's very important to exclude secondary causes, right? All of these are primary headache syndromes. They're idiopathic or have genetic causes, um, but they're not secondary to a structural uh, abnormality of the brain or something that would be treatable in a different way. And so for all of these disorders, we are very likely going to examine carefully the patient and look for vascular abnormalities or other structural abnormalities. In cluster headache, you know, common mimics would be things like uh, cervical artery dissection, would could include lesions in the uh, cavernous sinus or uh, in the basal forebrain or other areas that sort of have node susceptive inputs in the same region. And so it would be very important to do a careful clinical examination and, and, and much of the time we're gonna do brain imaging, including arterial imaging in these patients. So Safa, tell me about uh, your general understanding of the acute treatment uh, for cluster headache. So what are the things that we're going to use for cluster headache for acute treatment? So when I think of cluster headaches, I always think of oxygen. Um, it provides the fastest relief, um, at least from what I've experienced. Other treatments that work for migraine as well uh, are triptans and DHE which I'm not sure if, you know, we would dig into the, the, the physiology of exactly how it works, but similarly to migraine, they do offer relief for cluster headaches as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, and oxygen is one of those really important parts. It's one of the things that will allow uh, patients to respond. And it's a very specific treatment for cluster. And, and very importantly, this is uh, oxygen by mask, uh, a typically a non-rebreather mask, and it's sort of the high flow. You know, what you see is sort of these uh, cranking it right up to the 10 or 15 liters uh, per minute by this uh, face mask. So nasal cannula at a couple of liters, like we might do in, uh, in an inpatient, is, is not going to cut it. Uh, the, the evidence is for the high flow oxygen uh, through a non-rebreather mask. Importantly, you mentioned triptans. I agree those work for cluster uh, and, and, uh, and also, as we've said, we use those a lot for, for migraine, but it's very important that oral triptans, so uh, enteral triptan medications are not likely to be particularly effective in cluster and not something that we would usually consider. So we're thinking about either intranasal or subcutaneous. So the intranasal triptans that we have are, are sumatriptan or zolmatriptan, and the subcutaneous triptan that we have is, is, uh, is sumatriptan. So uh, those would be treatments. And then there is intranasal 
uh, DHE, and in, in very severe cases, sometimes IV DHE. So these are the acute treatments, but, uh, but oxygen is going to be a big part of that. It can be a real challenge we won't get into, but it can be a real challenge to get oxygen for our patients. And a big part of patient advocacy is, is, is getting that oxygen in place. So you may see that really important to think about oxygen, parenteral triptans, DHE, those are great. And what about, what about the preventative therapy? What are, what are effective preventative therapies for cluster? So for preventative, uh, one that comes to mind immediately is verapamil, particularly verapamil out of the calcium channel blockers is the, the one that we typically use for cluster headaches. Um, additional therapies would include um, val valproic acid uh, to pyramate. Um, yeah, so cluster is not typically one of the endomethacin you know, what we traditionally think of the endomethacin responsive headaches. So uh, we'll get back to that. The uh, endomethacin responsive headaches, just to uh, repetition is really good, would be the hemicrania. So paroxysmal hemicrania and hemicrania continua. We'll talk about those in a bit. Uh, but those are sort of your classic endomethacin responsive headaches. Some of the sort of primary not onanomic headaches can also fall into that endomethacin responsiveness. Uh, exercise-induced or exertional headache sometimes is endomethacin-responsive. Headache associated with sexual activity can be endomethacin-responsive. So those are the ones that we think of for endomethacin-response. But some people attempt an endomethacin trial for cluster, especially if somebody has atypical features or, or it's sort of a, you're not sure if it's cluster or, or uh, paroxysmal hemicrania. It, yeah, the first line therapy is typically going to be verapamil. Really importantly, uh, the uh, the uh, not the long acting version, the, the immediate release uh, or short acting version tends to be uh, more effective. And then you often need uh, TID dosing for that. Uh, and often it's required to use really high, high doses. Uh, we've had the experience of having to use really high doses of verapamil. And as you push it up, you really have to watch the EKG because there is the risk of uh, cardiac conduction abnormalities or heart block because it's a calcium channel blocker. Absolutely. Um, lithium is used. Uh, so that's sort of on the uh, category. You hadn't mentioned that, but that's sort of one of those first or early line uh, agents for uh, cluster headache. And then further down are some of the anti-seizure drugs, valproate, topiramate, maybe gabapentin, you know, uh, things like that. But you, your, your big two are probably going to be the verapamil, the short acting verapamil and, and lithium. Uh, and then people talk about using bridge therapies, you know, when somebody's in a cluster to really get them through. And those can include steroids. Some people do uh, the, the DHE protocol, which we've used here, or, or sometimes injection therapies of, of different sorts. So some people recommend sort of bridging with those uh, medications as you initiate uh, uh, the preventative, because really you got to get the lid back on the pot uh, and then start the preventative medications and then have the rescues available, you know, the parenteral uh, uh, triptans and, and oxygen. So I think that's all I really want to say about uh, cluster headache. Uh, again, that's sort of the basics. There are other things to consider. Uh, again, consider secondary causes. Uh, and, and, and again, for the exams and sort of interesting pathophysiology, remember that posterior hypothalamus, remember orexins, uh, and, and remember that that's probably the key to some of the cyc cyclic nature of these. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Muller. I think we're all experts at, I hope, uh, maybe uh, experts are at cluster headaches now. Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly an expert at cluster headache myself, so, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but it is a good one. You know, you will see it, uh, and these patients are suffering. Interestingly enough, I have noticed that uh, patients with cluster headache are among the most active 
uh, on the internet, you know, in, in, in advocacy, advocacy groups uh, for themselves. And I think that's really understandable because of the, uh, the suffering that these uh, patients experience. And so, you know, we didn't mention a couple of other sort of, you know, later line or experimental drugs uh, for cluster. And, and again, really our, that the reason is our purpose is to sort of understand the fundamentals and the basics and sort of the, uh, the things that would come up on an examination. So any of those listening and thinking, oh, you didn't mention the hallucinogens or you didn't mention uh, some of the CGRP monoclonal antibodies, you know, galcanezumab ha may have a role in cluster. Uh, I acknowledge that. Uh, again, I'm not the world's expert in cluster, but really want to spread the word about the fundamentals, you know, getting on top of the fundamentals of this disorder as we, uh, as we move towards better treatments. And uh, all these fields, and, you know, we really hope to get more advancements and more treatments. All right, let me give you another case, uh, Safa, and uh, hopefully this shows you the distinction. So how about this time we talk about a 35-year-old woman? Uh, and this is a woman who over the last several months uh, has been having these very brief uh, excruciating headaches. She says they're always on the left side. They always have this tearing of the eye, uh, and sometimes her eye is red. And she says that uh, they fluctuate. They're between moderate and very severe. Uh, and they're really these, these jabbing, jolting, stabbing headaches that are sort of in the temple or almost sometimes she says like somebody's putting a poker right through her eye. And okay. she says that these episodes can occur dozens of times a day. So she'll have these episodes uh, for, uh, you know, it, it'll be like every evening, she'll have these episodes for a few minutes, maybe five, 10 minutes. And, and they'll just happen like 20 times and then go away. And each time she's just totally worn out. Uh, she doesn't have any focal neurological dysfunction and she otherwise feels fine. So what, what are you thinking about here? And I'm sorry, Dr. Muller, uh, it's 10 minutes, lasting 10 minutes. Yeah, 10 minutes. So, the, you know, there are a couple of things. Uh, so we're definitely the, the, the lacrimation, the conjunctival injection, nasal congestion. This is all uh, trigeminal autonomic uh, cephalalgia sounding. I think paroxysmal hemicrania is something that we should consider for her as a diagnosis, given the duration and given the clustering um, and, and the unilaterality. Yeah, I think that's great. I think uh, that's exactly right. So you recognize again on our continuum, one clue and exam, exam writers sometimes uh, want to keep things within the lines and, and within sort of the common uh, in order for us to recognize these illness scripts. So right away, if you see that it's a woman, uh, if it's a female patient and you're getting this trigeminal feature, probably not thinking cluster. Again, you may get a curveball, but probably not thinking cluster, which again has a, has a, a, a much more common in men than women. And if you have multiple attacks, and again, they're very brief in this minutes range, right? Remember, cluster sort of hours, you know, an hour to maybe 30 minutes, 15 minutes, but usually in that hours range. Uh, paroxysmal hemicrania, minutes, and then sunk and suna, seconds. So we're in the minutes range and we're in sort of the uh, multiple, but not hundreds uh, of attacks and then those autonomic symptoms. And again, more common in, in women than in men. So all of those things are sort of your illness script for paroxysmal hemicrania. Uh, and this is uh, something you'll see. Uh, it's probably less common than uh, cluster, uh, but something that you will see from time to time. And so what are the treatments that you want to use for paroxysmal hemicrania? I think we talked about this a little bit before. Absolutely. So those are actually endomethacin responsive, like you were mentioning, uh, unlike uh, cluster. Um, 
So we can we can trial that. Yeah, that's typically going to be your starting drug, right? Uh, and 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 if you see this on an exam, that's going to typically be your your area. And and the protocol we use here, uh, which is uh, related to the uh, international classification of headache disorder criteria, is uh, starting uh, at 25 milligrams three times a day. Then after a few days, going up to uh, 50 milligrams three times a day. Then after a few days, going up to 75. And, and at any point in between sort of stopping at the dose that's effective. Indomethacin is a very powerful NSAID and, and can cause a lot of gastric issues. So uh, in, in terms of our protocol, and we have this written down on our little card, we also suggest uh, a proton pump inhibitor or caraphate, uh, sucrophrate uh, for gastric protection uh, because of, uh, of that. And so uh, that's sort of our typical indomethacin trial. And typically in paroxysmal hemicranial, you'll see a dramatic response to the point where it's almost a, a diagnostic feature. And uh, this would be a good time to go back to our website, the ICHD, and go through the criteria, review the criteria for paroxysmal hemicranial. So the criteria, of course, are multiple attacks. That's always the first criteria. In this case, at least 20. That's severe, so very bad pain, usually orbital, superorbital, or temporal. As I said before, that's similar with all of the, the attacks. Uh, lasting between uh, two minutes and 30 minutes. So again, minutes. So again, repetition is key, right? Cluster, an hour or so, plus minus. Could be longer, could be a little shorter. Paroxysmal hemicrania, minutes. Sunct or suna seconds. So, and, and again, these are broad strokes, but this is a, to allow you to build those schemata to build those illness scripts. And again, the autonomic features, you want to see those. So conjunctival injection, nasal congestion, or, or running of the nose, uh, the edema around the eyelids, the forehead or facial sweating and meiosis and ptosis. So you're seeing a lot of the same things we saw before. And again, at a frequency of more than five a day, and often much more than that. And actually, interestingly, in the ICHD criteria, they include responsiveness to indomethacin as a criterion. So really that's diagnostic as well as treatment. If you see that responsiveness to indomethacin, that's a good indication that this is a, a, that this is a paroxysmal hemicrania. And, and again, they do mention the cyclic nature of, of these uh, disorders. So they mentioned that during part, but less than half of the active time course, the attacks may be less frequent. And so that's getting back to the, hypothalamus, getting back to, you know, all of those uh, 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 neuropeptides and everything involved, you get that as well as sort of episodic daily cyclic nature of these things, you also get sort of temporal variability. And that's extremely common with this disorder to see times when it's better and times when it's worse. And, and that can be very helpful. And so, you know, and, and they mentioned the dose range for the endomethacin, uh, which can be between 150 milligrams daily and, and 225, which is really between 50 TID and 75 TID. Sometimes you can get away uh, with the lower dose. And that's why we start with the 25 TID as part of our, our protocol. And then maintenance, you can sometimes back off. And they mentioned that in their criterion. So the most common, I think, types of questions that might show up on an exam with paroxysmal hemicrania is that you'd be able to recognize the syndrome and then they'll ask about the specific treatment. You know, what, what is the treatment? And, and you have to make that step and say, okay, this is likely paroxysmal hemicrania. This is an endomethacin responsive headache. Let's go quickly uh, through a last case. Uh, and this, this time uh, we're going to talk about a young man. Uh, and so let's say this is a man in his twenties. Uh, and he has this pain uh, in his 
eye. It's really the stabbing pain in his eye and behind his eye with a red eye. He has this red eye and he has these attacks, these stabs last a second or two, you know, a couple seconds, maybe five seconds at times. And he has a hundred of these a day. He's just having them all the time and just can't uh, do anything about this. And like I said, he has this red eye. So what's this syndrome? So this is sunk and several characteristics uh, uh, um, to differentiate this from others is the seconds that you um, mentioned before uh, and the fact that it carries the characteristics of the uh, uh, trigeminal autonomic cephalologist that we've spoken about before. Yeah, so we talked about sunct and suna, and it's time to spell it out. So this is uh, one of those neurological classes. I'm not going to make you do it. I'll do it. Short-lasting, unilateral, neuralgiform headaches with conjunctival injection and tearing. That's the CT. So short-lasting, unilateral, neuralgiform headaches. That's the sun. And then CT is the conjunctival injection and tearing. And then we also have suna. So what's the difference? What is suna? So that would be short-lasting unilateral neuralgiform headache attacks with cranial autonomic symptoms. Nice. Yeah. So the A is autonomic. So you may not have conjunctival injection, but you have something else besides that. So the classic sunk, the conjunctival injection and tearing uh, would be sort of classic disorder, but you might not see that, but you might see headache attacks with similar uh, features and have other autonomic symptoms. I think I've only seen this once or twice, you know, that I've been pretty confident about. I think it's a it's an uncommon disorder and it's important to exclude secondary causes. We talked about this before. So that would be uh, middle cranial fossa abnormalities, pituitary abnormalities, cavernous sinus types of problems, uh, vascular abnormalities, you know, dissection, things like that. So there's lots of things that could mimic uh, this type of disorder. And you really have to exclude all of those things before you consider uh, sunct. But let me walk through the ICHD criteria. I think this is a great website. And so again, multiple attacks, moderate or severe pain, that is orbital, superorbital, temporal, or in a trigeminal distribution. And the neuralgiform part is that sharp zapping shooting pain. That's, a, that's why the end, the neuralgiform. And these can last between one and 600 seconds, usually in the seconds range, uh, less commonly minutes and occurring as stabs, a series of stabs or this sawtooth pattern, these sort of baseline with stabbing on top of it. And again, at least one of five of the cranial autonomic symptoms. And those are just what we talked about before. The conjunctival injection and tearing, nasal congestion, eyelid edema or periorbital edema, uh, forehead or facial sweating or flushing, uh, fullness in the ear, that's a little different. You sometimes see that, and we haven't heard that described in the other criteria. And then the uh, droopy eyelid and the small pupil, meiosis or ptosis. And, uh, and these are very frequent. So these would be at least once a day, and uh, they can also sort of cluster. This is a rare disorder, uh, not seen often in practice, but very important because uh, the treatment's a little different. So uh, do you know what the treatment is for this, Safa? So for these, we would trial more of anti-seizure medications like lamotrigine and topiramate. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the typical treatment, uh, the classic treatment for Sankt and Suna, uh, first line is lamotrigine. Uh, and uh, we can use topiramate. And, you know, we find sometimes when we have somebody with a headache syndrome with mixed features, topiramate is an appealing option because it can sort of attack 
many of these disorders, some of the tax and, 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 and those with migraines. So sometimes just practically I use that, but it's good to know uh, uh, that Lamotrigine, a sodium channel blocking uh, anti-seizure drug uh, would be first line therapy. And, and that probably gets at the episodic nature of this, right? And I, I'm an epilepsy doctor, as you know, and I'm always fascinated by some of the parallels and overlaps between these episodic disorders. And we certainly see a lot of my patients with seizure disorders have migraine or related headache disorders. And, and I think it's interesting that there are these uh, episodic syndromes. Now let's talk about a young person who's had a headache for months, just continuous headache for months. There's a clue. Uh, and it's strictly side-locked. So it's only on the left side. There is sometimes some redness of the eye. The pain is baseline pretty bad. And when it gets severe, it's really bad. And there can be these jabbing components. There's this feeling of roughness uh, in the eye, almost like sometimes she has this feeling like she has something in her eye. No migraine features, no sensitivity to lights or sounds or nausea or anything like that. Uh, and, and it's strictly on that side, really focused around the eye and the temple with these jabs. Um, what's one possible explanation for this disorder? So I think there are various characteristics. The uh, A, we know that we're talking about autonomic, trigeminal autonomic capillages because of the eye, the nasal symptoms, et cetera. The fact that it's four months, we already know that it's a continua. And the fact that it's unilateral, we know that it's hemicrania. So I think this is hemicrania continua. You, you've gotten an A plus on your Latin exam, Safa. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. That's yeah, you know, uh, I, I have to admit, um, and, and maybe this is just me, I, I haven't confidently diagnosed a hemicrania continua. I've talked to some of our headache experts who say they see it uh, from time to time, but I, I think this is a, a very rare disorder. Uh, however, it is one of the endomethacin responsive headaches. So the ones that have the Latin word hemicrania uh, are typically gonna be endomethacin responsive. So the reason that this is important is that you can provide tremendous relief uh, within dimethacin to a patient like this. And this is why you, you know in our resident clinic that we frequently attempt an endomethacin trial in, in patients who have a side-locked headache and might have some autonomic features. Most of them do not respond. Uh, so most of them do not see improvement after endomethacin and, and really that excludes it. So let's go back to our handy dandy ICHD. So uh, the hemicrania continua uh, is a unilateral headache. So again, it's gonna be side-locked. And again, side-locked is one of those red flags. And I, I cannot remind you enough that you really need to look for secondary causes, you know, other underlying causes, structural causes, et cetera, for headaches when you have a side-locked headache. Um, but that you have this headache that's present for at least three months. So that's one of the uh, criteria. Uh, and these uh, is sort of a continuous headache with a, uh, exacerbations that are at least moderately severe, but maybe greater than that. And it has either one or uh, both of the following. So the autonomic symptoms. So again, we can run through them. Repetition is really useful for uh, learning. Uh, conjunctival injection or tearing, nasal congestion or a runny nose, periorbital edema, forehead or facial sweating, and then the uh, meiosis, the small pupil uh, or the ptosis. And again, like all the other trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, that sense of restlessness or agitation. And I think this is one of those features that we don't ask about enough, right? And when you listen yeah. to somebody's story, are you pacing around when you have these headaches? Are you really, on, you know, just can't get comfortable, can't get a rest? Uh, th that's a clue. Mm -hmm. And then again, let's move to the next criterion. 
responds absolutely to therapeutic doses of indomethacin. So a diagnostic criterion of this disorder is that you will see a response to indomethacin between 150 milligrams a day and 225 milligrams a day. And you may need smaller doses for maintenance uh, according to the ICHD. So, so we do a lot of indomethacin trials. They're usually negative, but if they were positive, that would be sufficient with somebody with a strictly unilateral longstanding headache with some autonomic features to make the diagnosis of hemicrania continua. That, that, is, a, that is a great review. I, and I can quickly go over the salient features that are kind of the buzzwords for um, every one of these. So for cluster headaches, you're looking for one to eight attacks per day something around that range, 15 to three hours, 15 minutes to three hours, some features in addition to the uh, autonomic uh, possible features would be agitation, smokers, males much more than females, alcohol as a trigger, uh, and treatments would be acutely oxygen. We can trial triptans or dihydrogotamine, uh, and for maintenance would be verapamil or lithium, uh, among others that we've pre previously mentioned. Yeah, and just to emphasize parenteral tryptans, right? Uh, intranasal or subcutaneous, uh, the, or, the oral tryptans tend not to be effective for cluster. That's, a, that's an important uh, key. Uh, paroxysmal hemicrania tend to be attacks one to 40 per day. They would last for about 20 to 30 minutes. Sorry, uh, two okay. minutes to 30 minutes. Yeah, two minutes to 30 minutes. So minutes, right? Minutes. An hour, minutes, seconds. Minutes. That's down our continuum. Exactly. And then other features would be more common females than males. It's pretty rare. Uh, it is endomethacin responsive. Uh, to add to our uh, endomethacin responsive will be the hemicrania continua, which is essentially similar to paroxysmal, except that it's continuous for months to even years. Uh, very rare as well. And it's also endomethacin responsive. Last one that I want to mention would be the sunctensuna, and those are uh, more the seconds. Um, and that would be one to 200 per day, one seconds to 10 minutes. Uh, they respond to lamotrigine and to pyramids. Great. Okay, let's finish up with one last case, uh, taking a little side detour. And uh, this case is a 25-year-old young woman, uh, otherwise healthy, who for the last uh, couple of months has been having this uh, excruciatingly painful sense of pain in her jaw on the right side. Uh, so she's just having these jabs or jolts. It almost feels electrical. So there's sort of a baseline of an ache or tingly sensation, but she has these jolts that are just excruciating. Uh, they almost bring her to her knees. And she has stopped washing her face on that side. She has avoided brushing her teeth on that side, even sometimes on a cold day like it is today out here. She knows the wind on her face will cause the jabbing to come out. Sometimes the pain can actually spread up and kind of be in, in her ear a little bit. She has no numbness in that area. She really doesn't have any pain anywhere else. Uh, and like I said, her review of systems is really unremarkable and her physical examination is unremarkable, importantly, including the fact that she has really mildly subjective altered sensation in the, in the V1 distribution, or sorry, the V3 distribution of her jaw on the right side, but, but minimal, you know, and, it, and it's really, she would barely let us touch it because uh, it's so uncomfortable. So... What do we think this is? So you've touched the, the sensitivity as well as the jolts, particularly in the V3, uh, is all features of trigeminal neuralgia. Unlike the 
uh, the, the autonomic cephalologist, the trigeminal autonomic cephalologist that are typically V1, uh, trigeminal neuralgia is very commonly V3, um, and the sensitivity to cold and touch is a key. Yeah, and so this, uh, the other names for this are tic douloureux, which uh, I think means just sort of uh, this uh, tic causing sadness or, or episodes of sadness. And again, th- very seriously, this is one of those other suicide headaches. You know, this is one of those ones that is so uncomfortable that life seems unlivable uh, if it were to continue. So important to recognize and important to use appropriate treatments. And we'll get to that. Trigeminal neuralgia, very importantly, uh, this is not necessarily in every case but most often is going to be in the V2 or V3 distribution. And when it's primary, you know, not related to some secondary cause is most likely going to be unilateral, you know, strictly unilateral. So when you talk about V1 neuralgiform pain, go back to the things we talked about just a while ago, the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, that'd be pretty unusual, right? The temporal or the, or the eye. And when residents come to me in clinic and they say, I think this person has trigeminal neuralgia because they have jabs of pain in their eye, you know, or, or their forehead. I think eh, maybe not, you know, it, it, that might not be what it is. Uh, or if somebody says they have bilateral facial pain, maybe not unless there's a secondary cause. Sure. Most common secondary cause of trigeminal neuralgia would be multiple sclerosis, I think. Uh, there are other causes like that. And so in a young woman, I'd be really thinking carefully about investigating for possible multiple sclerosis in this case. And an MRI of the brain, looking very carefully at the brainstem would be important. Within primary trigeminal neuralgia, we do talk about uh, microvascular uh, compression or contact with the nerves. So a portion of the posterior circulation pressing against the root of the trigeminal nerve. And one of the presumed mechanisms here is one of my favorite words in neurology, ephaptic transmission, E-P-H-A-P-T-I-C, ephaptic transmission. And basically what that is, is spontaneous depolarization of the axons because of focal demyelination. So crosstalk within the axons. And then so you get the spontaneous synchronous bursting of neuronal activity uh, that in this case is perceived as painful. And that may, may be why you see that touch or tactile sensitivity to trigeminal neuralgia. Now, we often do the special MRI or MRA with thin cuts through the uh, brain stem and, and uh, features to look for contact. It turns out from my reading that contact alone is pretty common in asymptomatic individuals. So you really, to be very confident, want to see compression. Uh, so focal demyelination or compression of the trigeminal nerve or the origin of the nerve. So this, this is important to recognize. So again, let's go to our, our favorite ICHD3 uh, criteria. Uh, they have one for trigeminal neuralgia, primary trigeminal neuralgia. So recurrent paroxysms of unilateral facial pain in one or more distribution divisions of the trigeminal nerve and restricted to that area. So you really don't want to see it spreading to the back of the neck or something like that. Uh, the pain is lasting from a fraction of a second to a couple of minutes. It's severe. This is one of the severe ones. And it has that electrical shocks shooting or stabbing quality. Again, that's the neuralgia form component of the pain. Uh, It can be precipitated by innocuous stimuli. We talked about that, brushing your teeth, touching the side of your face, the wind, those sorts of things. And importantly, not accounted for by a secondary cause. We want to make sure that somebody doesn't have a tumor in 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 the brainstem or a structural abnormality in that region. And the duration can uh, change over time. So what, is, what are the treatments uh, for uh, trigeminal neuralgia? So that would be carbamazepine and oxycarbazepine as first line. Yeah. So, so, uh, so you know, there is an American Academy of Neurology practice parameter uh, for trigeminal neuralgia, which is worth looking up. And I'll point our listeners to that. 
Uh, the uh, strongest evidence is for carbamazepine, a sodium channel blocker, and that may get back to the ephaptic transmission that we're talking about. Oxcarbazepine, a related medication, may have some benefit as well. So those would be sort of your first line. So you want to think of either carbamazepine or oxcarbazepine, and there's a little be better evidence for carbamazepine. And then, you know, second line, you can think about other anti-seizure drugs, baclofen, lamotrigine, things like that. And then beyond that, you're sort of moving into uh, less confident uh, therapy. And we won't spend too much time on it, but you want to think about uh, if, if that's refractory to all of these medications, you really want to get a multidisciplinary face pain group involved. And that may include a headache specialist, a neurosurgeon, other interventionalists, and then you start to talk about other treatments. But there's a really a lot of debate about the, the sort of surgical treatments, which can include a gamma knife, can include microvascular decompression if you see contact to that region uh, and, and other treatments. So I'm gonna get less into that, uh, but the important thing is sort of to recognize the clinical syndrome and to think about carbamazepine or oxcarbazepine as your first line uh, therapy. I always learned so much from talking to you, Dr. Moeller. I hope our listeners did as well and benefited from the session. Thank you for sharing your time with us and there will be more episodes soon. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thank you. You know, I always feel self-conscious putting these things out in the world, especially when I'm not an expert, but I have done general neurology for a while and, and uh, I'm speaking from that context. So Absolutely. if people have comments, they can reach out and let us know what we missed. Let us know how we can improve our podcast. Thank you. 